Hello, everyone out there. What's flashing? It's Lashanti the Siren, and you are now watching Siren Sundays. And today, our guest is Dr. Carlisa Callwood, Director of the Community Conservation Education Action Program at the Perry Institute for Marine Science. And this episode is proudly sponsored by Science and Perspective, because we all need a little more science and a lot more perspective. Welcome, Dr. Callwood. How are you today? Hi, Lashanti. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you for being on. And it's really exciting to have you because as some people who know me in the real world, <laughs> I do work at the Perry Institute for Marine Science. And this is my amazing director. And I was so excited that she agreed to be on this show, especially after her recent publication that she had on parrotfish and the fishery in the Bahamas. Super excited that she agreed to this. So can you let us know who are who is Dr. Carlisa Callwood? Um, so <laughs> Uh, you know, it's weird, like most people don't call me doctor, but I do have a PhD in ecosystem sciences and policy from the University of Miami um, that's focused on the sustainability and management of fishery systems. Um, and although I'm not from the Bahamas originally, I've been doing a lot of work in the Bahamas over the past decade. Um, originally, I'm from the Virgin Islands. Um, so I feel like a lot of connection with uh, a lot of the, the work that happens in the Bahamas and a lot of the people that I meet remind me so much of people from back home. So it's like a pleasure and honor to be able to do so much work here. And we, we do enjoy having you. So can you tell us a bit about why you chose to study parrotfish in general? Like what's so important about parrotfish? Uh, so many people know parrotfish for being the, this bright, colorful fish species that you'll normally see if you're swimming and diving around coral reefs. Um, and a lot of people really know them also, at, you know, because they poop sand, uh, quote unquote. <laughs> um, and, but in reality, what they're doing when you see them is that they are, when you see them nipping at corals, they're actually eating algae off of corals. Um, and they're essentially providing a lawnmower type function to coral reefs to help keep that algae down um, and keep it from overgrowing on the coral. And this is really important because with this grazing function that parrotfish do and a couple of other organisms like um, uh, diadema, the spiny sea urchins as well, um, without that function, the algae really could overtake the reef. Um, and as we know, reefs are already fighting an uphill battle um, from climate change, pollution, lots of other things. So being able to have parrotfish and other organisms do this function of keeping algae really low um, is super important. So it's really critical that we not remove parrotfish from the system. Um, so it was really important to get a sense of what was actually happening, um, not only from the ecological side, with parrotfish, but also from the social side and getting a sense of what people knew about parrotfish and were they fishing parrotfish? Do they eat parrotfish? All of those things. Yeah, and I think that's so important because a lot of times when we hear about marine conservation and marine science happening in the field, people are always complaining, you know, people always check more for the animals and the fish and the reason they never really get too concerned about, well, how do the fishermen feel? What about what people think? Like, what is the actual perception that people have of these things? And a lot of your work that you did, you were working with Bahamian fishermen across the country. Yeah, and I think it's very important to make sure that we're getting the perspectives um, of the people in the community, particularly the fishers, uh, because when, when regulations and when policies get put into place, 
they're the ones who really see the impact from that. Um, not only from an economic perspective, but also can they simply, a lot of people are fishing to feed their families. So can they continue to do that if a lot of these laws or policies and regulations are put in place without really understanding what the impacts are to the community? Right. And I think a lot of times um, there's that gap where people in the communities and these fishermen, they don't even really know the science that goes behind why some of these policies have been created. So there is also that gap with just the communication about the science that's being done to them. Um, when it comes to parrotfish in particular, I know a lot of Bahamians saw the title and were kind of like, parrotfish? We don't eat parrotfish here. Right. Um, but other Caribbean islands, like I'm sure in the VI, do they eat parrotfish there? Um, it's a big, uh, it's a high value fishery uh, in the past in St. Croix, in the, in the US VI. Um, and I think uh, the US now has regulations against parrotfish, but other places like Haiti, and Jamaica, it's a it's a really popular fish, um, as well as I think places like Grenada. But some of those places in the past few years have started putting regulations in place um, to slow the catch of parrotfish over time. Right. And so, from some of your studies, did you find that a lot of people were fishing parrotfish? Yeah. Um, so we saw that there there were definitely more people catching parrotfish than we originally imagined were catching parrotfish. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what was interesting is that you can see, um, you can see that there's definitely a difference in some islands. So some places like um, New Providence, more people were saying that they, that they tended to catch parrotfish. Um, places like um, my, my iguana, I always say that wrong, I apologize. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> Yes, um, also like lots of people are catching parrotfish there. Um, so you definitely see a gradient among the islands. So it's not the same across the Bahamas. It's definitely place specific. Yeah, and I remember reading that and I remember speaking to you as well, being so surprised that Mayaguana was up there. And I think the top three islands that actually fish parrotfish, because I assumed that, you know, New Providence has a lot of fishermen and we have a high market. So, okay, maybe that's why we're dipping into this next species. But to hear some of the out islands and something like Mayaguana that has very small population fishing for parrotfish was actually really surprising. Um, but was most of that for commercial purposes or was that more substance in Mayaguana? Um, I think most of it was for sustenance purposes. Um, for many of the fishers, when asked what's the reason why you're catching the parrotfish, um, for many of them, it was simply because like it ended up on my hook, you know? So right. some of it um, is quote unquote by catch. Um, some of it is that there are fishers who have been really successful in selling parrotfish meat as grouper. Um, so they're essentially, <laughs> um, they're essentially taking a low value fish and creating value for it by substituting it for something else. Mm -hmm. um, and some are catching it, um, particularly in places like um, Abaco, um, because it's being requested by folks from places like Jamaica and Haiti. Um, where, like, as I mentioned earlier, that's, it's a popular fish species on those islands in those countries. So immigrants from there are requesting something that they're, they're more likely to get at home um, while, while they're here. Yeah, and something else interesting that you had said that I had asked about, and I remember we had a conversation about how parrotfish eat algae on coral reef, but somehow 
they're going for bait on lines, which is, I think this is slowly starting to become more popular because before I used to never hear about fishermen talking about, oh, I caught a parrotfish on my line. Like you'd have to go out and like spear them or catch them with a net. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, not even, I don't know if it's like the physiology, but like parrotfish don't normally do that. So how popular has that seemed to be coming um, over the years? Um, well, that was definitely one of the most interesting pieces of data from the um, from the results that we had was that the number two way to catch parrotfish was by hand line. And it, that was very interesting because like you said, it's like they're eating algae. Why are they going after a baited hook? Um, so there was definitely some debate about whether or not those responses were accurate or not, um, or whether they were true, or if fishers were just making up things during the survey. Um, And and, you know, my general sense is like most of the fishers that I have spoken to have always been like really upfront and honest about most of the answers that they give. Um, And doing some some Google sleuthing, (laughs) there are definitely some videos, there are many videos on YouTube of folks across the world catching parrotfish um, with hand lines and with, and with um, rod and reels. And there's a really interesting video um, of a parrotfish going after a line that's baited with raw chicken cutlets. And you can see the parrotfish. It's definitely curious. It comes up, it circles the hook, um, and then it takes a chunk out of the cutlet and before spitting it out and going about its business, because obviously it wasn't interested after it yeah. took a of it. Um, but after seeing that video, there, there's definitely no doubt that people are for sure catching um, catching parrotfish with hand lines. Yeah, we actually have an interesting comment from Gail Woon. Back in the olden days when I was commercial fishing in the 80s, we sold it as Blue Grouper. A wow. cafe in the bazaar loved them in there. Well, that's a word. Really? <laughs> There you go. Ours were not caught by hook, but Hawaiian sling, which is interesting because I could believe, you know, Hawaiian sling. But I remember a trip years ago when I was in Harbor Island, a fisherman had a very large parrotfish on his boat. And we were like, oh, okay, you you caught a parrotfish. He's like, yeah, he bit my line. And even from then, I was just kind of like, do they not have enough algae to eat? Because they can go to another reef. I'm sure there are so many other coral reefs that, that need parrotfish. So I think that just presents maybe some other area of research that someone can take on like why are pirate fish you know going after hand lines could it be that they're curious is there not enough algae on the reefs that they're at but obviously that's for any new quote-unquote food item into any organism's area they're going to go check it out that's true that's true so when it comes to talking about having a pirate fish fishery that's always such a tricky line to say in the bahamas what are some of the the thoughts and opinions you maybe want to share about should the bahamas do we think that we should get into this is this a viable area what types of things should we probably try to put in place if we do decide to do it what are some of the opinions that you have on that so i definitely think it's interesting that there is an emerging fishery for the species happening Um, especially as it's not one that many consider that they would have to worry about, particularly here in the Bahamas. Um, So do I think we should have a fishery? In my opinion, no. But I do think we really need to take into consideration that there there are starting to be more and more fishers who are making money, making revenue off of parrotfish. Um, You know, this search... 
this data, this research was over a very short period of time. And that data was collected, um, I think, back in 2016, 2017. Um, so it really does give a nice snapshot of what was happening to something that a lot of people were like, oh, they're not really catching parrotfish, so we don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I really do think that we need to take a deeper look as to what's happening in that system before we can outright say, let's ban everything. Because you want to make sure that the fishers, that the communities that are depending on fishing are not going to be highly impacted. Um, right. So you want to you input these policies and regulations in a way um, that's going to look out for their best interest as well as also looking out for the best interest of the environment. All right. So would you say that this is another viable topic for someone to continue research on? Do you have current research opportunities that someone could maybe give you data, collect data for you? Um, for sure. I mean, I would love to be able to get back out and do another round of surveys to see how um, how those numbers have changed in the past four, four to five years. Um, because I'm sure they have. And given one of the things I've been really interested in is looking at how fishing overall has changed given the pandemic. Um, and given that when a lot of people were displaced from their jobs, anecdotally, a lot of people actually went to subsistence fishing. So people who never really focused on fishing before, um, they, they're not bringing in an income, they've been laid off from their jobs, have now turned back to the ocean as, you know, the ocean will always be there for us. You know, Bahamians have that sentiment. Lots of people across the Caribbean have that sentiment. So really looking at how how the, the issues um, from the pandemic and some of the other social issues that we've been seeing over the past year have really, have they actually had a shift in how many people are actually going out there and fishing and what are they catching? Um, and you know, if you're looking to feed your family, it's not surprising that you might just take whatever it is that you catch, regardless if it's a parrotfish or some other fish um, that's out there. So I definitely think there's a lot more research to be done in that area. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. I hadn't even thought about considering the fact that, you know, the pandemic was a hard time for a lot of people. And many people actually did turn back into, well, let me go out and fish for some food. Because I remember when the lockdown happened, it was kind of this conflict of, okay, well, but we actually, we don't go to the food store. You block the beaches down. Like we need to get right. out and fish. And I've actually, around Nassau, I'm not sure if in your driving around you've seen it, but I've started to see more people actually fishing. Yeah, I definitely beach areas in, Nash in Nassau off the beach. Like, I mean, I was, um, I tend to go to Jaws Beach on the weekends mm -hmm. um, and I would definitely see people with their fishing poles and chairs kind of walking down towards where the rocks were to set up and fish for a couple of hours so it definitely increased during the time of the while we were in lockdown times you know? yeah because I've seen fishing happening even at Saunders and Goodman's Bay and I'm just kind of like wow like you know beaches that were historically known just for like leisure have now become like you know well there's a nice reef out there and I'm going to catch some fish and it's definitely a cheaper way than going to the food store. Um, but if you could give any advice to somebody who is, I guess, considering going fishing for pirate fish, what would you pretty much say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely say um, leave the parrotfish alone, avoid it if you can. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is particularly for folks who are fishing with Hawaiian slings or spears, because that like that's a very opportunistic tool. Like you are targeting what you're getting. So yeah. you can target something else. Um, and for those who are who happen to catch them on a line, if you're able to throw them back, throw them back. Um, but like I said earlier, I do think that we really need to think about uh, what the next step is in kind of managing this emerging fishery. Yeah. Um, but also one of the other things is I haven't really seen carrot fish on many restaurant menus, um, which is great, but I have seen it on offer on menus in like uh, like the fish markets or some of the fish stores. Mm. Um, there have been a couple where I have seen parrot fish. So to people who run those, I would say like they have an opportunity to turn, um, turn those species down if they're being offered it. Yeah. And actually, now that you said that, I don't think that I've ever been to a restaurant and seen it, but I know that I went to a restaurant and I won't say which one. And I asked for grouper and they said, oh, this is that American grouper. What is that American grouper? (laughs) Right. I was like. Is it Nassau group? Or it's like, not an American one. And I know that like parrot fish texture is a lot different. I've heard that the meat is softer. I've never knowingly ate parrot fish, but I've heard it's a lot softer. And I wouldn't be surprised if they served me parrot fish. And I remember just saying, you know what? No, thanks. I, and I gave it back. I was like, this is not, this is not Nassau group or you've admittedly yeah. said that, but I think that's typically probably what's happening because the fishermen are advertising that they're selling it. There may actually be some restaurant owners or people that are cooking for others that buy it and then try to sell it off as grouper. Cause I've heard it tastes great. It just is yeah. the texture is different, but guys learn yeah. your textures. You know, like fish fraud is, uh, is really high. Um, I don't know if there, I don't know if there have been many studies here in the Bahamas around fish fraud, but I know in the U.S. they're they're seeing like really high percentages of fish being um, labeled as one thing, and it's actually something else. So it's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely. I wonder if there's like. I mean, you probably wouldn't know if there's like a fine for that if you actually were able to catch somebody and maybe pay to have the DNA analyzed. That's another topic. Another um, topic for sure. Yeah, that's, that's a whole. <laughs> that'd be like fish food, what CSI or something. I don't know, but <laughs> that's your next. Yeah, yeah, they're right because I have heard they have like coral reef CSI. Like if someone hits a reef, they can investigate it, and yeah, a whole other topic. Maybe <laughs> we'll find someone who does that and have them on the next show. But yeah. can you tell us a bit about some stuff that you're currently working on? Are you still actively working in anything related to parrotfish? Um, well, with parrotfish specifically, the next step for us at Perry Institute is really taking um, some of the things that we found through the research and using that to develop um, uh, a sustainability campaign, really, um, and seeing how we can do a better job of informing people throughout the country, um, not only to, to not eat parrotfish, but why the importance of it um, because one of the, one of the questions that was asked during the survey is um like what do you know about parrotfish and you know analyzing that data like people have a really basic understanding of the ecological function of parrotfish so i think we all just need to do a better job of communicating why they're important because i think once people understand the importance and like having parrotfish gives us healthy corals 
which provides a healthy ecosystem for the other fish that mm -hmm. is supporting your business. Um, I think that would really make a connection for people as to like how they do a pro con as to whether to fish and eat it or not. Um, some of the other things that I'm also actively working on, um, which is similar to what I just mentioned with the parrotfish, is looking at the most effective ways to inspire behavior change for conservation, um, but also the best ways to evaluate if those changes are actually taking place. And I think it's really important because there are so many of us, um, Perry and Brief and all of these other organizations here in the Bahamas that are doing really great work, um, but really knowing whether or not we're having an impact um, and whether people are really committing to change, I think is something that we really need to do a better job of determining. Um, and really people in every country, each community, each of the settlements here are so different. So you really can't use the same tactic on every island. So you, you really need to think about a community strategy and what's gonna work for the people in each settlement and what's gonna make sense for them. So I'm really, um, I'm really interested in diving deeper into that strategy and what that might look like and how we can start crafting um, really effective campaigns uh, to get at conservation and what people can do to really have a positive impact for themselves and their communities. Yeah, and I think what you said is so important. A lot of times I find that maybe conservationists, especially those of us that study abroad and come back, we try to take this same almost kind of like cookie cutter, you know, model of how to communicate certain things. And we kind of forget the fact that even just as the Bahamas, as you've said, each island is different. Like, and we already have an issue here with this Nassau-centric messaging, right? Mm -hmm. But each island and each community on some of the islands, because you know some of the islands are also a bit segregated as well, you really yeah. have to, to really get into the community and understand that community, then to understand how to communicate to them. And that's why I think the social science side of marine conservation and even just environmental sciences in general is so, I think, very underrated. Because, you know, we yeah. have all these organizations doing the work, but how do we really know, you know, like, how are we proving that we've done good work, except for the fact that we can say, oh, 200 people attended this talk. Like, so can you maybe talk a bit about that? I know this is straying a little bit. Right, it's straying a little bit from the parrotfish thing, but I think it's so important also to just understand this, like, when you start talking about emerging fisheries, like, how do you get a handle on this? Just when you speak to people, how can you be sure that your message is effective? Like, what are some ways, because you've been in science communication for a while. What are some of the ways that you would say, okay, this is how I know my message actually resonated with these people? I mean, honestly, you have to go back into those communities and see what's happening. Um, because you can, you, can be, you can be over here and say, hey, here are the things you need to do. Great. Now you've sent that message. Now what's happening? You really need to. You really need to start going back into the communities um, and seeing not only if they're doing some of those things, but what are the things that are really accessible to them. And I right. think that's like that's really key because you can easily say stop eating all fish. There are lots of people who like that's how they're feeding their families, so that's not realistic, right? So what are some of the accessible actions? that we can get to people that make sense for their lives that can still have an impact on change. And I think that's what we really need to be focusing on. Yeah, and that's, that is exciting. So when it comes to some of the, um, 
even things related to this parrotfish fishery and just things related to, I guess, maybe conservation action in general. Um, what are some of the ways that you can say that people can get involved, whether it be with some of the work that you're doing at the Perry Institute for Marine Science, or if you just want to give general advice for people in creating this actual change? I'd say definitely um, the easiest way for people to get involved is by learning more about the issues in their areas that have a direct impact to them and their families. Um, because if it has an impact on you, you're more likely to care about it and want to do something about it um, and investigate the ways in which you can help. And I, I truly believe that everyone has the capacity to contribute to some of these things in their own way. They just need to figure out what that is. Um, and you can do that with us, with Perry, hopefully, you know, as some of the things in the pandemic hopefully start to go back down eventually, who knows when that will be, you know, we'll be able to get back into the community and be able to do things in the community um, that get to some of these actions. But there are also many other great organizations doing this work too in the Bahamas. Um, connect, with, connect with them, connect with us um, and see the conservation work that we're doing and ways that you can help, that you can help um, better your community for yourselves. Definitely. And so, and as we're winding down, you know, some of the, I like to always ask about final thoughts for viewers. And if you can base just kind of through your career path or even just some lessons learned that you may have gained during your PhD research, what would be some final thoughts for viewers or someone out there who may be watching and interested in getting into science communication, getting into social science? Like what advice would you give to that viewer? Um, hmm, this is a good one. <laughs> I would definitely say that, you know, as you know, I'm an inter interdisciplinary scientist. Um, and I say that a lot of people are like, I don't know what that means. Um, but I really do believe that a lot of the change that needs to happen, um, it doesn't just come from the ecological side. It doesn't just come from the bio biological side. We really need to understand how we as humans are impacting our environments and our ecosystems. Uh, and I think only when we get that really holistic view of what's happening can we actually really affect change. So make sure that, make sure you know how you're contributing to things, but make sure you also have like a decent understanding of what does this mean ecologically? What does this mean from all, all of the sides? What does this mean economically? Because we really need to make sure we understand each of those pieces um, if we're going to make things happen. And I always tell people it's so important to to have friends in your like people in your friend circle, even just acquaintances, people that you speak with regularly that are not in your sector, because then you can kind of start seeing, like you said, this more holistic view of the world and other people's opinions. And when you kind of start talking to them about things in your field and then they, you know, they speak on it, you're kind of like, oh, this is what this is what other people's perspective is like, because, you know, when you, you work in this field, you, you always around people in this field, you kind of just get into that like silo. Right. And you forget mm -hmm what other people are thinking. So I'm so happy that you mentioned that term interdisciplinary because it's so important to just remember there are other aspects right. to this thing, right? Especially in social sciences. Um, but our final question before we close out, what is your favorite sea creature and why? Oh, I thought long and hard about this one. <laughs> Ultimately, it always goes back to the spiny lobster. Really? <laughs> I love spiny lobster. I spent like a good 10 years studying um, Caribbean spiny lobster. Um, the fishery here in the Bahamas, but um, growing up in the VI, my dad is a fisher 
Um, and one of the things he would always do for me, like every weekend, is he would bring me a spiny lobster or two for dinner because he knew it was my absolute favorite thing to eat. Um, and I don't know if that had an impact on why I decided <laughs> to study spiny lobster fisheries and try to make them sustainable because I would like to continue eating them in the future. I don't know. Um, but maybe. But I also love that um, that spiny lobsters are kind of unassumingly like aggressive. Like people think that because they don't have claws, um, right. <laughs> you know, that they're not feisty and they're feisty. Are like, they? They're feisty, yeah. Like if you try to, when if you try to catch spiny lobsters, they're like zooming all over the place. It's like it's interesting. I, to yeah, I've never experienced a spiny lobster off of my plate, so <laughs> so that's actually interesting. And you know what? Now that you said it, I need to probably bring you back to talk about spiny lobster as well, then, because I forgot that you had actually started off with doing the spiny lobster fishery, mm -hmm. um, which is exciting. So at least we know your favorite sea creature and why. And thank you again so much for being on this show. It was really nice oh, chatting with you. Definitely looking forward to chatting you during the week as well for work. <laughs> and definitely going to look forward and maybe next season doing something about the spiny lobster fishery because I know we've had uh, Michael Bolig. He's currently doing his work in spiny lobster aquaculture and trying okay. to find um, more sustainable feed for them. So mm -hmm. it's not like, because right now you have to go out into the ocean to get their feed, trying to make something in the lab so it's like the sustainable yeah. thing. But we never really ever got into actually talking about spiny lobster and that fishery in the Bahamas, because that's the only one we have here that, what's the certification again? Um, um, it has the, the Marine Stewardship Council, MSC. Right. So it's the only certified sustainable fishery that we have in the Bahamas. So definitely to get you back for that. But thank you okay. so much for taking time out on your Sunday afternoon to join okay. me for Siren Sundays. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me to chat, Lashanti. Definitely. That's, we got to go chat over drinks, too. I got to learn more about, like, this interdisciplinary <laughs> approach, you know. Um, but, yeah, so thank you so much to all of our viewers and riding this wave with us. Hope to catch you next time on Siren Sundays. Always yours, Lashanti the Siren. See you next week. <laughs>